0: Good morning, everyone. We have an a interesting thing we're going to do today. I told you a few weeks ago we would <clears throat> take a little break right before uh, we finish this module. And this will give you a chance, by the way, if you are doing this for credit, which I hope all of you will at some point because you get so much more out of it, um, then you can get caught up on this. will I don't know if we'll get this done all this week, but this is an important topic. <clears throat> and so I want to spend some time on this. Then we will get to Hebrews, and then we're done with uh, Module 5. And just for your encouragement, Module 6 is only six sessions instead of the usual 14, um, because it's still a hybrid from what we used to do during the summertime. So <clears throat> uh, so today we're going to just do, and we've done some of this already, and I, I just wanted to do it in greater detail. But we want to look at um, some reasons that we believe the church is distinct from Israel and this is not a, in my mind, this is not a um, us versus them argument. This is an in-house friendly debate. <clears throat> but it does speak to something really, really important. And, and I'll get to that at the end of this time, either, t- either this time or next week. But it speaks to whether or not we interpret the Bible with theology or we interpret the Bible with hermeneutics. That, that's the question. And this helps us answer that question. Um, Reasons the church is distinct from Israel. So let's just start with uh, what some of our friendly opponents would say and people that we love in the Lord and are are friendly to the gospel. Gary Burge, in his uh, commentary on John, I just happened to run across this because it's just interesting to me. In his claim that the vineyard metaphor of John 15 shows Jesus replacing Israel with himself, uh, here's what Gary Burge writes. The practical implications of this are profound. Christians, particularly Western evangelicals, and I'll stop right there, that is a classic misnomer to say that people who live in the West are less capable of interpreting the Bible than people who live in the East. That there is nothing in Scripture to say that, so I would reject that. Particularly Western evangelicals have been quick today to endorse the territorial agenda of modern Israel for theological reasons. Often it is a zeal for eschatological fulfillment that has prompted some evangelicals to make commitments to israeli nationalism and i'll stop right there for a moment he's partially correct he's partially correct in that um in 1948 when israel was reconstituted all the all the bible prophecy people said see prophecies being fulfilled and we've said here often that the israel of today is not the israel of the future that the israel of today would crucify christ given the chance to do it again so, so, yes, they are reconstituted as a nation, and that is significant, but certainly not in the sense that the Bible speaks of it. <clears throat> um, and I'll also say this, uh, endorsing the agenda of an Israel for theological reasons. I, I don't know a better one, actually. Uh, that, that's a great reason. His reasons, and I didn't put the whole quote on here, his reasons are emotional reasons. Um, he wants a Palestine instead of Israel because he's spoken to some Palestinian Christians. And and so his reason is purely emotional. Um, we love Palestinian Christians. That doesn't mean they get to take away Israel. Any more than we love American Christians, that doesn't mean we get to take away Israel. Anyway, <clears throat> however, he says, deep within the New Testament is an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal. Just as Jesus is a replacement for the religious functions of the temple, so too Jesus replaces the religious inheritance of the land. Um, what is it see this deep within the new testament you know what that's code for i see it but you don't Mm -hmm. that's code for that and and i want to just talk about this and and gary birch his his writings are spectacular it's just on this area we would differ with him um he says uh where is it there the theological reasons uh oh well the the context of this is john 15 jesus says i am the vine okay and so he takes that as since the vine in scripture so often speaks of israel jesus now says i am the vine i am israel okay that's great let's test the hermeneutic okay anytime you you make an assertion you there's a rule behind it what's the rule that he just made the rule he just made is that if jesus says i am something that now replaces the previous thing okay We'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, I believe he's also making the classic error of deciding that a metaphor means the same thing all through Scripture. Um, And and that's easily disproved, so I won't go into that. But how about this? How about uh, in Genesis 4, I believe it's verse 7, God told Cain to be careful because sin is crouching at the door and is waiting for you. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. So would we say now that now Jesus has now replaced the door at which sin is crouching? That's ridiculous. That, so that line of thinking falls apart. So just because in the Old Testament the vine is very often Israel, Jesus saying I am the vine doesn't mean he's replaced Israel. So that's a, that's a faulty argument, falls apart at every level. Um, so we would, we would disagree with that. Let me give you another quote by another uh, wonderful believer. God granted to Israel a land, Genesis 15, 7, he underlines it in his book, in Christ, who is our land and our rest, the typological land becomes a kingdom. This is in Douglas Van Dorn's book, uh, Covenant Theology of Reformed Baptist Primer. Um, He goes on to say that a physical nation and a plot, quote, a plot of land in the Middle East are merely types or shadows of the spiritual realities that we now enjoy. Um, I personally hate this phrase, a plot of land in the Middle East. That's, that's almost racist. That is almost an ethnic slur. Um, because it just says some plot of land in the Middle East. How many people have died for that plot of land in the Middle East? How many people beg God for that plot of, of land in the Middle East? Did you know, right after Israel was conquered and in 70 AD, Jerusalem destroyed. There were little bands of Jews that still stuck around, even after most of them had either been killed or uh, 1.1 million of them killed, um, and another tens and tens of thousands carried off to Roman slavery. And a little band of Jews got together at the remnants of the temple to pray for the restoration of Israel and to pray for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And they, they would gather at this one place that was left, and they would weep, and they would pray there. And they still do today. That's the Wailing Wall. That, that's where that started, that, that one little remnant to the temple. So show that, to a, show that to a Messianic Jew, somebody who believes in Christ but believes in the promises of the Old Testament, um, and that's offensive. And so that, that, that's like calling somebody a name to prove your point. It doesn't prove anything. So, what what will we say about this? In Christ, who is our land and our rest? Oh, another critical error here. Hermeneutical error. Uh, <clears throat> in Hebrews 4, yes, definitely, Christ has become our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath now has a broader, grander meaning. The Bible never says Christ has become our land. It never says that. That is an assumption drawn from another text. So, that 's what that 's what these uh, folks think that we have now spiritualized that the land is merely a type or a shadow so that that 's where we start so what whether we to think is the church distinct from Israel <clears throat> uh, it, when you read a history read histories written by covenant theologians, um, they always like to go back to c i schofield um, c i schofield early 20th century um, <clears throat> he was wrong he was a dispensationalist who was so staunch in his separation of the church in Israel that he came up with things like uh, a spiritual plan for the church uh, in heaven and a physical plan for Israel on earth and and made a separation that we wouldn't go to today. Um, But what's interesting to me is when people write histories of dispensationalism, they don't include the last hundred years. They just go back to the part that they disagree with. Well, I would disagree with C.I. Schofield. Uh, of course. Um, we've made progress since then. Uh, so is the church distinct from Israel? I think, it's, I think it's a lot better, and we've talked about this already, to use language of continuity and discontinuity. Um, things that are the same, things that are not the same. Rather than forcing a black and white distinction, that Israel and the church are completely separate in basically every way. Um, <clears throat> Douglas Van Dorn Uh, when he defines dispensationalism, he says dispensationalists are all about discontinuity. We're all about all the things that are different. I would vehemently disagree with that. There's way more in common with Israel than with the church than we don't have in common. What have we said here a thousand times? In the Old Testament, you came to God by faith. Um, by the grace of God, and you showed your love as a true believer by obeying the law of Moses. In the New Testament, you come to, you come to God by faith through Christ, and you show your love for God by obeying, the love, by obeying the law of Christ. There's great continuities. And so I would disagree with anybody who says that we're all about discontinuity, that we're all about the disagreements. Um, I, I don't think that's the case at all. No one denies the continuities between Israel and the church i gave give you a few here. We're saved, all saved by faith. That has always been the case. <clears throat> Anybody who says in the Old Testament, you weren't saved by faith, that doesn't make them a dispensationalist. That makes them wrong. Okay, that's just the difference. There is a requirement of individual salvation. There always has been. That doesn't take away the idea of a national salvation. That's a whole separate issue. Partakers, we're all partakers in the Abrahamic covenant. We're all partakers in the New covenant. Those are continuities. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is ultimately the, the outcome of every saved individual. Um, that's between Israel and church. There won't be Israelite uh, or, or Israeli, if you want to call them that, Israeli Christians who aren't filled with the Spirit and the church is or anything weird like that. But just because there are great and wonderful continuities doesn't mean that we erase discontinuities either. Um, this is one of the downsides to systems of theology. Systems of theology try to boil down truth to its lowest common denominator to make it understandable, and to a certain degree, that's that's great. Um, but we don't get to simplify theology just to make it easier. Um, sometimes it's complex. Uh, and, and I would say, um, given the fact I have books on my shelf about God that are this thick, and the end of the book says what an inadequate treatment of God, I think we have to let the complex be complex and let that be okay. So let me give you some big picture notes here. Um, First of all, in the broad scope of, by the way, uh, this is going to be posted online uh, in all all of its uh, detail here. In the broad scope of redemptive history, the emphasis doesn't stay so much on Israel versus the church. It, It really doesn't. The church is defined clearly as the people of God on earth between Pentecost and the rapture. As we've said, but in the longer-range view of redemptive history, the distinctions go more toward Israel and the nations. That's where the big distinction really comes later. Um, and the nations with Israel as the chief glorious nation, which serves as the capital nation of New Earth. Some would say that the church is simply everyone who will ever be saved, going all the way back to Adam, continuing with Israel, then the Gentiles. I, we feel like that's an oversimplified use of the term the church. Um, I'm going to point out this morning in my message, Zechariah 9.9 is absolutely classic in terms of Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 is the prophecy of Messiah riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.10 is the prophecy of Messiah decimating all of his enemies. Has that happened yet? No. What's in the white space between Zechariah 9.9 and 9.10? We're in it. In the church age. The Old Testament, generally speaking, presents prophecies of Messiah without the church age. Why did, why did Paul call the church a mystery? Because it wasn't particularly revealed in the Old Testament. It's, it was a mystery. So, uh, another big picture note. The burden of proof is absolutely on the one who believes that the church is not a separate entity. Um, I refuse to be put in the position of saying I have to prove that the church in Israel is distinct. The Bible already says that. So the burden of proof is on you. Walt Kaiser wrote, there is an enormous body of biblical evidence that one must maintain the distinctions, including continuities and discontinuities. Now in the context of Kaiser's statement, he's arguing against the idea of replacement theology, which I'm going to mention that in a minute. But the same point can be made um, to make Israel and the church the same thing. Uh, you, you You have to overcome mountains of evidence to the contrary. Um to look for proof that the church is a separate entity to me, it already says you started with a presupposition that the church and israel are are distinct and, or that are not distinct, and you had to start there. I would submit that if you gave somebody a Bible who had never read the Bible, I'm going to get back to this point in a minute they would never come to the conclusion that israel and the church are 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 indistinct in that they're one entity i don't think they would ever come to that conclusion i can't prove that but that's just my thinking um some other preliminary notes this is based on an actual conversation i had with someone it's a false dichotomy and a straw man argument to say so you believe god has two separate peoples and this was a a a young person i was i was uh, debating this point with and and she was actually angry well how can you believe that you're and even intimating that, that there's a, a, a better people and a lesser people in the church or the lesser people. No, never, nobody ever said that. Early dispensational thought tried to make sense of the clear distinctions, and they took it too far, as I, as I mentioned. Um, but ultimately, God has one people, all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He has one people. But this one people have chronological and ethnic varieties. Um, would you say that we are worshiping God exactly the same way as Abel did I don't think so we're not killing animals and taking them to the gate of what used to be the Garden of Eden that's what he was doing Um, we we have chronological ethnic varieties are we building an altar of dirt or stone as Exodus 20 uh, says to do no we're not Um, I'm preaching that text by the way at uh, the, the steadfast concert night so we'll see how that goes There are the people of God saved by grace before Israel. There are the Jewish people of God saved in Israel. There are the Gentiles saved in Israel such as Rahab and Ruth. And there are Gentiles and Jews saved outside of Israel, the church age. Uh, In fact, Acts 15 proves that. You need not become a Jew first. There will be post-church age, tribulation saints. And uh, I think the implication is pretty clear in Scripture that there will be uh, post-tribulation millennial saints as well. So does God have two separate peoples? No, absolutely not. But he has a lot of chronological and ethnic variety along the way. Still just preliminary considerations. <clears throat> uh, this is one that that uh, I, I think we should be clear about. Many who believe that we should erase the distinction between Israel and the church push back against the idea of replacement theology, or it's also called supersessionism. Um, some writers I read claim that the idea that the church has replaced Israel is a made-up argument by dispensationalists, that we're making that up. But the idea of the church replacing Israel is historically part of the covenant theology belief system itself. All you have to do is do a little research, and you'll, you'll find that everywhere. Um, I think what they're doing is backpedaling on that point. I think they ought to at least be honest enough to say, we've developed away from that view as being erroneous. That's, that's intellectually honest. I don't mind saying C.I. Schofield was wrong, even though he was a dispensationalist. That's fine. Um, but they should be honest about it. Um, I don't think all covenant theologians are replacement theology proponents. They're not. But to deny that connection with themselves, is, that's inaccurate. And so that, that makes me dubious about their arguments. Covenant theologians have called the term replacement theology, quote, a pejorative term, which was made up by dispensationalists. But the term is taken taken from those who coined it in the first place. Uh, Michael Vlock writes, and he has evidence to back it up, quote, unfortunately for those who desire a different label, apparently the horse is already out of the barn. The title replacement theology is well established and does not appear to be going away anytime soon. Plus, many theologians who espouse a supersessionist view have used the terms replace and replacement in regard to Israel and the church to warrant the title replacement theology. Then he goes on to name names of current supersessionist theologians who espouse uh, the term replacement. But but even those who prefer the softer idea of the church being a fulfillment of Israel, um, as the picture, Israel is the picture and the type, and the church is the fulfillment. They still fall into the, into the category of saying national Israel is done. They're still in that category. Okay, those are preliminary thoughts. Um, that, that's the hard part. Now we get to the easy part. I'm just going to give you a list. You know I like lists, so this is a short one. There's only 32 things in it. So uh, I don't know whether we'll get to it, all of it. Reasons to consider Israel and the church is distinct. Um, part one is going to be directly from Scripture, and then I'll give you some lesser important um, reasons. Number one, to have the church in Israel be indistinct now forces a spiritualized interpretation on huge portions of prophetic scripture and it affects hundreds and hundreds of passages. Now, land is no longer land, but it's a symbol like circumcision of the provision and the grace the church has in Christ. Um, For example, Genesis 15, verse 18, God promises Abram that to his descendants, God will give all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. Which has never happened yet, but in typical fashion of one who has a presupposition that the promises to Abraham don't have a literal fulfilment in Israel, uh, our good friend, the old Puritan Matthew Henry, he wrote quote, "The land granted here this is of his commentary of Genesis fifteen the land granted here described in its utmost ex- is described in its utmost extent because it was to be a type of the heavenly inheritance." where there is room enough, in our Father's house are many mansions. So in other words, when God said to Abraham, you will receive the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, what he really meant is that heaven is really big. That's fine. Show me the steps that got you there. Just because good old Matthew Henry um, said it, who will have a far greater place in heaven than I ever will, um, just because he said it doesn't make it true. Now, you might say, well, Matthew Henry wrote hundreds of years ago. How about six years ago, the Church of Scotland issued an official report which, quote, concluded the land promised to Israel no longer stands and was allegorical to begin with. What does that mean? They just said that when God said from the Nile to the Euphrates, he didn't really mean it. That there was a deeper hidden meaning that nobody could figure out until apparently the 1600s. That's what, that's what that's saying. So now you're forcing a spiritualized interpretation. Fine. I, I understand there are many godly men who spiritualize scripture. <clears throat> Show me your rules for doing so and where you derive them from. How did you come to the conclusion that from the Nile to the Euphrates equals in my father's house are many mansions? Now, can you use that as an illustration? Absolutely. It works as an illustration, but to say that that's the actual deeper meaning, now you're getting into uh, what we call Platonic hermeneutics based off Plato's idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And Platonic hermeneutics plagued the church for the first couple hundred years of the church, and we would push back against that. So we want to be really careful. Um, If you want to spiritualize a text, great. Are you following the same rules that you would say in the Gospel of Matthew as you would in Isaiah? If you can honestly show that you are fabulous, Um, then then that's fine. That's intellectually honest. Uh, Dr. Greg Harris, who who has preached here, uh, has written a guide to the Old Testament. And he's shown pretty categorically that people who who go along in this camp um, use a different hermeneutic to interpret the Noahic covenant than they do the Abrahamic covenant. Noahic covenant. It's literal. It really means everything it means. Abrahamic covenant. is spiritual. It doesn't mean exactly what it means. Pick one. Just be consistent. Either spiritualize all of Scripture or spiritualize none of it. All right. Another reason. The Bible explicitly promises that God's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant in particular, is eternal and unbreakable. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37 is particularly explicit about this, and I won't read the whole thing to you, but basically he, he says, um, as soon as the stars and the moon fall apart, then my promises will be done. Um, in other words, he's saying never. I'll give you another reason here, and just you can just note that reference. The Apostle Paul's declaration, Romans 11, 1 through 2, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to, against, to God against Israel? So in no way does Paul ever try to say that the church is Israel now. In fact, I read an interesting article where a, 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 guy, a theologian challenged you to read Romans 9-11 through 11 out loud and replace the word Israel with the church every time. So I did it yesterday, just for fun. Um, And he's right. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, There's a distinction there. Another reason. The other times in Romans 9 through 11, Paul keeps the church in Israel distinct. I made a short list here uh, of the times he keeps them distinct. That is a conservative list. Others see the distinction in many more places. I gave the ones that are really uh, very, very clear cut. I didn't give the, the more debatable ones. But he keeps the church in Israel quite distinct. We have the context of Paul saying there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. In uh, <clears throat> there in uh, Romans ten twelve, he's not saying that the Israel, that Israel and church, the church are now interchangeable. It's that the same Lord is Lord of all. Um, what's the context? Well, if we use that faulty logic again, if the hermeneutic is. To say there's no distinction between Jew and Greek means they are now interchangeable. What about when Paul says uh, in Galatians three twenty eight that in Christ there are no male or there's neither male nor female? Does that mean now that we go along with the gender non specific movement? Well, in Christ we're whatever. No, doesn't mean that. That's obviously not the case. So we call for consistency. Another reason. The New Testament explicitly says that the Old Testament promises to Israel are still the possession of Israel, not that they're somehow fulfilled in the church or fulfilled in Christ. Romans 9, 4, and 5, they are Israelites, and to them, present tense verb, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, present tense verb, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." Uh, Romans eleven twenty nine 29. In the context of Israel, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, not replaceable, not let's changeable. <clears throat> I think I just coined a word, let's changeable. Right, that works. Here's another one. The Old Testament, sorry about the font, it is like a two. The Old Testament teaches the future, literal, permanent restoration of the nation of Israel on a massive scale. This is not... A verse or two here that we're trying to build a whole theology on. This is Deuteronomy 30, first six verses. Jeremiah four chapters, 30 through 33. Ezekiel four chapters, 36 through 39. Amos nine, 11 through 15. And I put this one up here because this one is particularly difficult to explain away with symbolism or typology of any kind. Um, Zephaniah three fourteen through twenty, Zechariah twelve thirteen and fourteen, Isaiah chapter sixty, um, not to mention pretty much all the minor prophets. I mean, what, what's the what is the 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 whole theme of the twelve minor prophets? You remember the theme? It is that God will judge Israel for their lack of obedience, and He will restore them in the future. That's the theme of all twelve. Uh, essentially, Jonah might be a little bit of an exception, but. Um, so I put Amos 9, 15, 11 through 15 up there just, just for your, um, your perusal. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treather of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. These are very, very easy to interpret things. Nobody has a hard time figuring out what those things mean. What does it mean to rebuild a city? Well, it means to rebuild a city. So either you have to believe that's true or you have to spiritualize it. And there's nothing in the text to tell you that it's spiritualized. Trees of the fields, clap their hand. Anybody have a problem with spiritualizing that? No. It's obvious. Trees don't clap. Do people rebuild cities? Obviously. There's nothing in the text to tell you to make that a metaphor. Um, you don't get to just decide so that one in particular how about this one i will raise up the booth of david that has fallen and repair its breaches um, to try to explain that away that's why some would say that david, that jesus is ruling on the throne of david now in heaven well doing what he's not he's not ruling over anything if he's ruling in over the day uh, the throne of uh, ruling the throne of david in heaven because there's no israel to speak of that is following christ There is no Israel to rule over yet. How about this one? Uh, The New Testament reiterates the future salvation and restoration of Israel. This is not just an Old Testament concept. And I just gave you some references there. Number nine, the apostles believed in the restored national Israel, and Jesus did not correct it. He just didn't tell them when it was going to happen. He didn't tell them when. Acts 1, 6 through 7, uh, (laughs) John MacArthur did a whole talk on this at Shepherds Conference one year. It started quite a stir. Uh, They put it in his Luke commentary, and it's fabulous. His basic point is, in Acts 1, 6, and 7, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Would there not have been a better time, or could there have been a better time for Jesus to have said, that's not going to happen? But he didn't. He said, I'm not telling you when, but he never denied that it was going to happen. Number 10, the New Testament never uses the term Israel for those who are not ethnic Jews. There, there is no nomenclature. There's no name for new Israel. Uh, the title Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament and every single time refers to ethnic Jews. You have to spiritualize it to say that it doesn't. Did I, I didn't go to that one, did I? There we go. Um, even after Pentecost, it's, it's ethnic Israel. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's similar to number 10. It still refers to Israel as Israel after Pentecost. If the church has replaced Israel, you would expect that term to disappear. Um, and now you might say, well, that's an argument from silence. Well, let me give you another one. The angel of the Lord all over the place in the New Testament, Old Testament. How many times do you see the angel of the Lord in the New Testament? Zero. Why? Because who was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? incarnate Jesus Christ. You guys are well taught. So you don't need to say the angel of the Lord. Uh, if the church is replacing Israel, if we're going to be consistent, then after Pentecost, you don't see Israel anymore. Or you see them mixed and, and you don't see that at all. Acts maintains, uh, number 12, a clear distinction, referring to Israel 20 times, ecclesia the church, 19 times. The two are never mixed. They're never interchanged. And <clears throat> This is one I wish we could spend a lot of time on. Uh, commonly used proof texts for replacement or fulfillment position of theology. Um, All of them have very reasonable explanations within a framework of a distinct church in Israel, and you can study those for yourselves if you want to. Uh, This is one that's interesting to me. I've never heard heard an explanation that's anything less than childish, honestly, of this one. And that is Matthew 19.28 explicitly says that the apostles will in the future reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. I have never heard anybody explain that adequately other than to say, well, he means the church. No, he doesn't. Because in Matthew 18, he said, in the church, when you have problems, he referred to something in the future that was different, distinct from Israel. Number 15, the apostles preached the restoration of Israel to Israel's leaders in Acts chapter 3, during the church age the church age has now been inaugurated but they preach the the restoration of israel and i'll let you look up those verses for yourself romans 9 6 number 16 indicates that believing jews are the true israel but it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel and we've always said that here that true israel will be those who have believed on the lord jesus christ You notice that Paul did not say that believing Jews are now merely part of the church. He defines them as true Israel, and he doesn't define believing Gentiles as true Israel. True Israel is made up of believing Jews. Now, I have heard the argument, and this is a reasonable question to ask, well, what if I'm 49% Jewish? I mean, everybody's everybody's lineage is so mixed up now. I don't know. I can't answer that question. The Bible doesn't answer that question. Um, but I'm not going to interpret Scripture with science. That's ridiculous. I never interpret Scripture with science. It will always fail you every time. Number 17. Paul says that God is faithful to Israel because of his specific promises to the patriarchs. Romans eleven twenty eight. 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Why will God form a nation of Israel? Because he promised Abraham and he promised Isaac and he promised Jacob. I'm glad God is a promise-keeping God. I'm glad he doesn't redefine his promises to them because he might redefine his promises to me. How about this one? I know I'm going fast. You guys are doing great on an early Sunday morning too. Uh, this, this is a huge topic. I'm just going to touch on it here. The quotation of Amos nine eleven through 15, that, that really important Old Testament passage I've already referred to, in Acts chapter 15, shows that Gentiles becoming the people of God is consistent with prophetic predictions, but it's not intended as a comprehensive theology of the continuities and discontinuities between Israel and the church. And James in Acts 15 never says that Amos 9 is fulfilled he just says that the prophets agree that there will be Gentiles called by the name of the Lord uh, and I bring that up because sometimes replacement theology folks will say well that proves that that the church has now replaced Israel it doesn't say that if you look carefully number 19 Israelite usually when you're speaking if you say the word number 19 you have way too many points and I know that I acknowledge that uh, Israelite language is used in the New Testament but this bears witness to continuities not to complete amalgamation remember we've said that there are way more continuities with Israel and the church so would you expect there to be a whole lot of similarities absolutely but that doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 Romans 9, 24 through 26 uses very Jewish language but that doesn't negate the distinctions 1 Peter, especially, would have been a marvelous opportunity written to disperse Jews, by the way, to define the church as new Israel. But he doesn't do that. He never does that. This one's just interesting to me. I don't know if you see it as a proof, but, but it's interesting to me. Isaiah 19, 24 and 25 predicts that someday God will call Egypt my people, ostensibly referring to saved Egyptians. But Egypt is mentioned alongside Israel as a distinct entity, not an inculcated entity. Egypt is my people, but they are not Israel. So, that, so you, you have to explain that. Um, and again, somebody might say, well, Egypt is just metaphorical for all Gentiles. Where does the text say that? Until, until it says otherwise, Egypt means Egypt. Number 21, New Testament prophecy is abounding with predictions of a future Israel. Uh, Revelation 7, all the tribes of Israel are mentioned. Revelation 14 also, by the way. Uh, Matthew 24, 15 and following is clearly about future Israel. Jesus is telling future Israelites what to do during the tribulation period. Paul refers to a future temple in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Number 22, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And if you were here when we preached through John 10, you remember that he was speaking of the Gentile elect. He made a distinction between saved Jews and saved Gentiles. And listen, it's not a distinction of value. It's just a distinction of variety. Okay, it's, it's green grapes versus, versus purple grapes. They're all grapes. They're just different. 23. New Jerusalem will have gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know how you get away from a national Israel flavor to that. Um, if it's not about something that's in the present, then those gates become gravestones. They're they're essentially memorials. They're they're uh, mausoleums. Number twenty-four: the Davidic covenant demands a national Israel, which is different from the church. If you read Second Samuel seven, if you spiritual, if you if you don't spiritualize all the details of Second Samuel seven. Um, you have a nation of Israel. You can't get away from it. Um, okay, Those are those are straight out of Scripture. I want to give you some other considerations, and, and we'll see if we can get to... Um, are we going to get to all these? Well, we might. I'll do these faster. Other things to consider. <laughs> yeah, faster. <laughs> if God has changed the definitions of land and, and nation to mean provision in church, then he deceived Abraham. I will go to my grave believing that. Because I need God to mean it when he says, when you die, to be absent from the body is to be with Christ. I need him to mean those things because my soul, my future is counting on it. So when he says to Abraham, I'm giving you a land and a nation, we need him to mean that. Um, Is the land now spiritualized? Gary Burge writes, Jesus spiritualizes the land in John 15. Well, God told Abram in Genesis 13 through 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. He said, walk on the property that will become yours. And I refuse to call that a plot of land in the Middle East. I would call it God's national promise. Genesis 15:18, on the day that the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying, I've already mentioned this, I will give you this land from the great river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Genesis 17.8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Another issue, the church as replacing or being the fulfillment of Israel has been strongly connected with Christian anti-Semitism in history. I, I have read probably five or six covenant theologians who deny this, adamantly deny it. I wish they would read Barry Horner's book, The Future Israel, What Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged. He makes an airtight case for the historical nature of the association between replacement theology and anti-Semitic leanings. He documents, because of a belief in no literal eschatological future for Israel, the anti-Semitic statements most famously of Augustine, who is a a huge, maybe the major contributor to covenant theology thought. He quotes medieval church historian Jeremy Cohen as writing that the medieval church had an anti-Semitic policy, largely because of Augustine. John Calvin wasn't much better. He was passive toward Jews. He declared that the church was New Israel, and Jews were expelled from all the cities that claimed to follow Calvin. Because remember, in the, during the Reformation, the government and the church were intertwined. And so if John Calvin, with his great influence, said, Israel is, is no more, Jews were expelled. They were kicked out. That's not made up. That's history. That, that can be looked up. Just for fun, I listed a few Christian Jewish organizations who vehemently cling to the promises of a restored Israel. Friends of Israel, International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, Jews for Jesus, well, there's more than one. That says Jew for Jesus. Jews for Jesus. <laughs> it's a really small organization. Chosen People Ministries. They all, And by the way, they all have in common, uh, they use the same hermeneutic. A literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Um, I, I, w- I would love for covenant theologians to sit down and talk to Messianic Jews and have a conversation with a human being instead of just with books. How about this one? the massive inconsistency of views among the church's Israel proponents. And I just gave you a list there. You don't have to remember these. Punitive supersessionism, that God is punishing Israel for her rejection of Christ. Economic supersessionism, that it was God's plan for Israel's role to expire. Um, And then structural supersessionism, that the Old Testament is basically silent on the formation of our convictions about God's consummating work. And there's a lot of other variations as well strong supersessionists believe israel has zero future moderate supersessionists see a plan for the salvation of jews as a group but they don't get their land but all of them have in common uh, that the land promises are done so there's, there's a lot of inconsistencies there how about this one uh, twice in history god has regathered a completely scattered israel and that's not proof in and of itself, but that's never happened. There is no nation formed 3,500 years ago that exploded twice and was regathered twice. So why would, we, why would we have trouble believing it might happen again? Number 30, the church is a partaker currently of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. We, we know that. We understand that. But we're not partaking in the, spiritual, the physical blessings of the new covenant. Well, who decided to separate those out? Well... The, the church is experiencing the beginning of the new covenant But there's still things in the new covenant not yet fulfilled Which ones? The land promises The, the promises, national promises to Israel um, And we all have to say, well, does that leave the church out in the cold? No, we find out what happens with the church Zechariah 14, uh, Revelation 22 That we journey to Jerusalem We love and we fellowship with the uh, capital nation of the world Oh, It's going to be a great time um, we studied in Isaiah that that after the Great Tribulation, Gentiles will be helping Jews get home. How do you explain that away? Oh, we love that. It's going to be rich. Uh, this is just one that I made up because I've preached through the book. You have to reinterpret the whole book of Isaiah to get rid of a natural, a national future Israel, which is distinct from the church. Having literally worked my way through every word of Isaiah in Hebrew and in English, that's a big hurdle to get over. Isaiah is huge in this. And then you have the faulty argument from silence. Some will say the New Testament doesn't mention the land promises. That means the land promises are now only a symbol because they're not mentioned anymore. Anybody ever heard of the Pendrel family? Nope. You haven't heard of the Pendrel family. Let me tell you who the Pendrel family is. The Pendrel family is the family that saved in 1651 Charles II of England when he was on the run for his life and been defeated in the English Civil War. The Penderel family hid him. Charles II was a man of great means. He promised in writing the Pendrel family that they would receive perpetually a pension and inheritance from the family of Charles II. You know when the first time they got a payment was? It was 1652. You know when the last time they got a payment was? January of 2019. The Pendrel family now there's so many of them, they get like $1.95 each. But nobody would say, well, that contract is too old, so it's null and void. The, the courts don't see it that way. They see it as still good because the contract was made, has never been nullified. Just because the land promises don't continue into the New Testament doesn't mean that the old ones are nullified. Um, the things that are nullified are made very clear in the New Testament. All right, let me take a, a minute here. And I wanted to get to this part. Where does the problem lie? I don't have a I don't have a slide for this because I, I just was working on this. <coughs> and I won't even call it a problem. Let, let's call it the the watershed. Which side you're going to fall on. The the watershed moment lies on how you approach the Bible. How are you going to approach the Bible? Proponents of Israel as fulfilled in the church or as Christ fulfilling. Um, the promises to, to Israel as the total fulfillment. They reach this conclusion because of a theological position. And that's not me making that up. That's what covenant theologians say. Douglas Van Dorn, who wrote the covenant theology uh, primer, he says, quote, and he says this all over his book. I'm just giving you a couple. Quote, covenant theology is a system of biblical interpretation, which organizes the Bible around covenants. He goes on to say that, quote, the idea is never to have the system drive the Bible, but the Bible drive the system. Agreed. We would agree with that. But he also assumes that it's impossible to approach the Bible without a theological system in the first place. So in other words, he completely contradicts himself. He says, you should approach The Bible based on the Bible, but you can't approach the Bible until somebody's told you how to do it before you get to the Bible. Which one is it? He says this It is naive to think that anyone approaches the Scripture apart from some preconceived network of ideas. I understand where he's coming from, but I know lots of people who have approached the Bible apart from a preconceived network of ideas. We call them new believers who have never read the Bible. Just read the Bible and and, and give it to them. I have had one opportunity, somebody who, who went here a number of years ago just for a little bit of time, was a new believer, and he said he'd never read the Bible for, before. I told him to start in the New Testament. So he didn't know anything, never, I mean, he hadn't even been in church, didn't know the Christmas story, didn't know anything, read the Bible, New Testament, over and over and over again, just hungry for the word. And I asked him, what do you think about the church in Israel? And he gave an accurate dispensational view. he had never read anything except the Bible. That was the conclusion he came to. Now, that's, that's anecdotal. That's not proof, but that's anecdotal. But to say that you can't read the Bible without a theological system, that's dangerous. Because now, here's the difference. We are not to approach Scripture with a theological system. If somebody tells you dispensationalism is a theological system by which you interpret Scripture, I would, I would disagree with that. That's wrong. That is not okay. Okay. We approach scripture with a hermeneutic, a Bible study method by which we derive theological conclusions. And what's the difference? You say, well, both of them are man-made systems. No, they're not. You can derive your hermeneutic from how biblical writers studied scripture and what they say about scripture. What did Jesus say about the word of God? that not a jot or a tittle, not a dot of the I or a cross of the T will pass away. What does that tell you about hermeneutics? It tells you literally every letter is important, right? So we derive our hermeneutic from Scripture, but here's the big, big, big difference. Hermeneutics forces you to think and to test what you find. Theological systems have done your thinking for you, and teach you to just confirm what you already believe by finding it in the Bible. You see the difference? There's a big difference. My hermeneutic corrects me. My theological system doesn't ever correct me. It just always agrees with me. Right? Hermeneutics is a, is a taskmaster to poke at me and to say, no, you got it wrong, because you are starting with a presupposition that is not supported. So I have, to, I have to scribble out my conclusion and come to a new one. You know how often that happens to me? Pretty much every week. Because if I start with a presupposition and then go to the hermeneutics, the hermeneutics correct me. So that, that's the issue. Theological systems do not force you to think. They tell you what to think. And that is not to put down the volumes and volumes of theology that are written by theologians um, that you have to think through, but they're still telling you what to think. I will respect a theological position when you tell me, here are the ten ways I got here. Then we're good, Then because now it's based in hermeneutics. Um, so that's I think that's really the, the ultimate issue. If somebody says, I believe Christ is the fulfillment of the church, here is my hermeneutic, which matches with yours, And yours matches with mine And we reach different conclusions Now we examine the hermeneutics Great, that's fabulous But I will not just swallow a theological system Just because a lot of other people did already So um, that's why this is important It's about how you interpret the Bible um, And you you read it carefully You know what the best statement on hermeneutics I ever heard Uh, It was a QA and a with a professor of hermeneutics uh, from another seminary. Uh, how, do you, how do you approach the Bible? He said, you read it like a newspaper. Well, wh- what do you mean by that? Well, he meant just believe what it says. Don't find hidden meanings. Just believe what it says. Uh, that's pretty good advice, I thought. And then draw your conclusions from what it means. So, all right. Well, I told you we would do that and get that done. And uh, next time we're going to do the book of Hebrews. And uh, then we're done with module 14. How many of you here are doing homework right now for Module 14? Uh, Okay, a few of you. Uh, We'll probably take at least a week uh, to do something different. I'm sorry, Module, there's 14, Module 5, 14 sessions in Module 5. I've got cold medicine going right now, so... um, uh, we'll take at least a week between modules. We'll still meet and we'll do something else. I haven't figured that out yet, but we'll still meet. So anyway, thank you for sitting through that. I hope I hope that you learned something that at least um, draws you to st- study your Bible with care and with great uh, conviction. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, thank you so much. Uh, we praise you for your chosen people. And I, I dare say that when the millions or billions of elect are all singing around your throne at the end of all things, I don't think these arguments are going to be really all that significant. And I think the, the borders within which we live aren't going to be all that important. And yet you have, you have called us to be precise in your word. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to do that. I praise you that we're part of the mystery. We're part of the church age. We're part of that in-between time. Um, when you've turned away from Israel for a time, and, Lord, now you have been so gracious uh, to Gentiles, to those of us who we, we all have ancestors that worshipped rocks and wood and, and uh, vegetables. And yet you have drawn us to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And for that we give you thanks and praise. Amen.